0: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.
1: Hi, I'm Gordon Murray, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello, everyone, and welcome to
0: another episode of your favorite podcast, Beyond the Grid, Presented by Bose Comfort 35.2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is a man who in a 20-year F1 career worked for only two teams, Brabham and McLaren. His cars won 56 races and eight world championships, and he's renowned as one of F1's great innovators and technical brains, perhaps the best. I'm talking, of course, about Gordon Murray. It's 50 years since Gordon came to the UK from his native South Africa. He didn't think he could walk straight off the boat into a job with an F1 team, yet that's what he did. And he went on to form an incredible partnership, his word, not mine, with Bernie Eccleston as the top dogs at Brabham. He worked with some brilliant drivers along the way too, Reutemann, Lauder, P.K. Senna and Prost, to name but a few. And he was very much a blue sky thinker. The ingenious Brabham fan car, that was him. The first man to introduce mid-race refueling, yeah, that was Gordon. The low-line Brabham BT55 skateboard car that would be recycled as the all-dominant McLaren MP44. Yep, that was Gordon again. So sit back and enjoy hearing from one of F1's most inspirational designers on the day that he launches his new supercar, the T50, perhaps the world's last great analogue road car. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Gordon, welcome to Be On the Grid. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Now, it's been 50 years since you moved from South Africa to England. To pursue pursue what exactly? What what was the plan 50 years ago?
1: Well, I grew up in Durban in a racing family and I was always uh, car racing and speed mad. And the only way I could go racing was to build my own car when I was 19 in 1967. Raced that This is the short version, by the way, raced that for two seasons and then thought, um, if I wanted to further my career in racing, um, but also by then I was interested in design. I started off as an engine person before chassis, so I was interested in engine design, car design and racing. I should go to the centre of the universe for those things, which was the UK. So at the end of 69, I jumped on a um, cargo boat and came over here to sort of... (laughs) <laughs> Seek my fortune, if you like. Um, and then I, in the first year, 1970, I started with Brabham Formula One team.
0: So so the motivation when you got on the boat mm. was to pursue your career as a racing driver, primarily? Primarily,
1: primarily racing driver. But in the process... Were you quick? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I was... I never came second. I, I got red haze a lot. I either... I won a few times or I crashed. I can't remember coming second uh just I like would, jimmy clark actually, i wouldn't yeah. have made yeah i don't think i would have made formula One. Well, apart from anything else i'm six foot four mm. um no i was i just wanted to go racing really okay so
0: to go racing as you say to to pursue that career as a driver but you were already looking at the design type of things. so what was the plan when you got off the boat where were you going
1: well as a when i got off the boat i was what 21 22 years old and it, even though I had designed my own car and my own engine in, in South Africa, I didn't ever think I'd be able to walk into a job in racing. So I tried to get a job in road car design and I'd been writing to Lotus. Colin Chapman was my hero growing up. And I got offered an interview at Vehicle Engineering, which is their car section, if you like. Um, however, when I got to Lotus, I hadn't, I hadn't followed the English news for a few months and there was a mini-recession going on, and they just put a lot of people off, so that didn't go anywhere. Was Colin the only guy you wrote to? I wrote to Colin, and he referred me to a chap called Brian Luff, who was head of vehicle engineering at the time. Uh, But I wrote directly to Chapman.
0: You didn't didn't write to Bruce McLaren? No, 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 uh,
1: just just Lotus.
0: Now, why, why did you think that you couldn't walk straight into a job in racing?
1: I suppose it's just because, in my head... Coming from a colony, in my head, you know, UK was just like the be-all and end-all for, um, for racing and my other love, music at that time, the late 60s and in London. You know. And I just didn't think I'd be accepted or good enough to walk into a, a racing team. As it happened, I ended up with a job in Brabham, so I, I was. But it was me that set that standard. It wasn't what anybody said to me.
0: So how did Brabham come about?
1: In looking for a job, I got offered an interview at Fair Oaks Aerodrome where Len Bailey and a team, a small team were doing the Ford, I think it was called the 3L or the 3FL for Le It was the next car after the GT40, if you like. And uh, they were doing it for Le And Len thought he needed another designer. And I went down there for uh, an interview, but... I went down for two interviews ultimately, but he messed me around a lot with, we're not sure we can afford anybody or then we need somebody. And one of the older chaps in the design office, when Len was out of the office, said to me, he doesn't know what he wants, you know, he's going to keep messing you around. Brabham, Formula One team at the u Works just up the road, by Fleet, uh, they're looking for somebody. So I went up to Brabham and knocked on the door And Ron Torenak, who was the chief designer, the T in the BT, if you like, Jack was still driving then, Uh, he interviewed me. And on the basis, he wasn't interested in my academic uh, qualifications, on the basis that I had designed and built my own car and won races with it, I got a job as a designer. And then 15 minutes later, the guy that had an interview booked already turned up. So again, it's the right place at the right time. Yeah. And they turned him away. And they said, "Yeah, we we'll just hire somebody." Yeah. So,
0: so you knocked on the door. It was a
1: cold call. Yeah. Wow. Well, I said no. I knocked on the door and I said to reception, "You're looking for a designer," and and they thought I was the person for the interview.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Jack was still driving for them.
1: Yeah, that was his last year, 1970. Mm. That was that was his. Last year. He retired at the end of that year and around that time beginning of 71 Bernie Eccleston turned up bought Jack's 50% of the business and then within a year had bought Tornax 50%.
0: Now how how did the team change when Bernie bought it?
1: Well it didn't initially because we were doing um, we were doing formula 1 I did actually in 71 did a study for an indie car we were doing the old hill climb special and making a few dozen production cars every year, Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula Atlantic cars. And um, when Bernie first turned up, that continued for a very short time on the production cars, but it became very obvious that Bernie's real passion was with Formula 1. And we, we stopped all the other activities and turned. So it was, it was during 71, I suppose, when where the change happened, I can't remember when the last i think the last production formula 2 car was 71
0: and at, this was the moment when you thought gordon murray racing driver isn't going to happen i'll concentrate you, on the drawing board uh no no, no. <laughs> I, I wanted to do both so i but i had no money again So to did, did was jack brabham quite an inspiration as a sort of he was a lovely man but a it, driver, he driver, he made his own cars. Did yeah, you I kind mean, of envisage it, that kind of future for
1: yourself? Um, not rarely, because I knew by then I, was, I would never be good enough for Formula 1, and I was the wrong size anyway. Um, but Jack was certainly an inspiration, and I could see um, the value of a driver also being a designer. And if you look back through Formula 1 history, quite a few of the successful team owners and designers started off racing themselves. I think you'd get a better understanding. So I, I wanted to do both. I wanted to design, but I still had this desperate desire to go racing. But I had no money. So I looked around, and the only thing that looked fascinating to me was Formula 750, which used a little Reliant 750 engine. And although you were very tied down to the expensive bits, like the powertrain, the chassis, the regs were very, very open, and that appealed to me. And I started building a Formula 750 racing car to go racing myself.
0: Extraordinary. So you're at Brabham, end of 71, Bernie comes in and pretty quickly sacks everybody as far as I can make out, except yes. for you. What was it about you? What was about this halo that you obviously had over you in Bernie's eyes? What, was it, what did he see in you, I, you think? I,
1: you know, I've asked Bernie directly... And he, he, he makes several different comments and jokes about it. And I, I really, to this day, don't know. Um, it could have been that around that time, I had an offer from the Pedrazani brothers in Italy to come and design them a completely new Formula One car. They had a flat 12 engine, which was a sort of a Ferrari copy. And they were going to fly me out to Italy, double my salary and, bring me home when I needed to come home and get me a house. And, and I don't know whether Bernie found out about that or not. Did you tell him? I didn't tell him, oh. no, no. But <laughs> to complicate things further, at exactly the same time, this chap called Alan Academy approached me to do a Le Mans car, a three-liter prototype to try and win Le Mans. And because it was a bit of a mess at the time and nobody really knew if Bernie had bought the place, there was no communication really to speak of, Um, I decided to leave Brabham and go with Alan and do this car. And very shortly after that, Bernie said, i fired everybody else and you're it. I want a brand new Formula One car for next year. So I had the Pedrazani stuff hanging around. I had the Decadene car and Bernie's offer of promotion. So I decided the Brabham thing sounded really good because I could get to do. I turned down, and I I stayed at Brabham and got to do my first full um, car for the seventy three season.
0: That's an extraordinary amount of responsibility for a guy in his early twenties with very little oh, experience.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know it's terrifying. I mean, and then so I was I was chief designer suddenly, and within two years of that. I was technical director and running the business, hiring and firing people and totally responsible for everything technical in the business. And that... I was then, what, 25 or 26? And looking back now, I should have been terrified, really. Um, But I wasn't, so it must have been self-belief, I suppose.
0: How interested was Bernie in Brabham? Or from the outset, do you think it was just a tool with which he could wrench control of Formula One. Do you think he always had that ulterior motive? Uh,
1: you know, I, I don't believe he did. I believe... He, Bernie's a racer. I mean, he's, he raced himself, you know, in the 500 Coopers and that sort of stuff. Um, he's always been a racer. I think he bought, was it the Connaught team at one point? He tried to own a team before. I think it was Connaught's. Um, and he he just wanted a Formula One team. But Formula One was in such a mess; it was literally on its knees. I mean, if you were lucky, we—I think we had Goodyear sponsorship, and it was probably just tires. <laughs> and and Formula One was really on its knees. Uh, and I think it was pretty within the first two years, let's say, Bernie started looking at Formula One as an opportunity. But I truly believe he bought Brabham just because he wanted to own a team and have a Formula One team.
0: And tell us a little bit about what you had around you at that time in 73. I mean, you know, Mercedes, for example, I think they're a team of 1,000 people now.
1: Yeah, they've just cracked a 1,000, I think, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> how big was Brabham in 73? and Who was we there had,
1: helping you? Okay, we had, um, after the readjustment with Bernie, we had 17 people uh, in the company when I did my first car. And one of them was the receptionist, Jenny. Kathy was the accountant, and then we had Ian, the van driver. So there were fourteen people in this little shed next to the canal on the New Hall Works, um, and they included everybody in the workshop, the racing mechanics, the guys that built the cars back home. Fourteen people, and at that stage, I was the only person in the design office. So I, I literally did every single drawing of the car. And sorted out testing and packing spares for the Grand Prix, and when we got to the Grand Prix, I had to engineer both cars and the T car, the spare car. So if if both drivers came in together, one had to queue up to talk to me. <laughs> I mean, looking back, it was compl- it was ridiculous, really.
0: But no wind tunnels.
1: It was all just no, not in those days, no. So where where did you get your inspiration from? I sort of... I, well, I did mechanical engineering and I've always been interested in aerodynamics, always. And a lot of aerodynamics is rarely sort of seat to the pants and knowledge stuff. And, we, we and, you know, you, you get a feel for... You get some people that understand air and some people that don't. And I happen to be one of the ones that really loved it and understood it. And we did a few um, tests at Grand Prix circuits with wool tufts on the car to see where the air was separating and where we had laminar flow and stuff like that.
0: Wooltuff being sort of a bit like Flovis that we to Yeah, use it's Flovis, yeah. yeah. And we
1: used to use Flovis as well. We had a liquid that we used to pour on top and underneath the car. Mechanics hated it.
0: Did you always subscribe to a, a good car? A fast car can be a beautiful car as well.
1: Well, I, I'm unusual as an engineer, because I started in art, actually, at school, and I only switched to mechanical or technical drawing, I think it was called in my first year of high school. And I still do a bit of drawing and painting and I still love doing all the styling on the cars. So I'm unusual for an engineer. So, you know, there's a lot of the motor car in those days that didn't make any difference to the aero, you know, the shape over the cockpit. Its main job was to keep the, the driver in a bubble so he didn't get any buffeting at high speed. And I just naturally drew stuff that was attractive, you know, such as the BT44. Yeah, Absolutely I think Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, car. most of the cars were quite pretty in those days. And of course Bernie loved that too because he Bernie was very much into keeping the cars look immaculate and good and he did a lot of work on the on the sort of um, colour schemes on the cars. So, so he did meddle. I mean livery. You, you were oh, in charge only, of the day-to-day oh yeah, he, running. He and... never ever meddled in the mechanical side of the of the of the car. But he was very, very um, heavily into how the cars looked. So all the liveries we had, you know, he had a big hand and all that.
0: And, and he was the, the, the money guy?
1: Yes, I mean, he was the one that went out and kept us afloat, if you like. And paid you the big bucks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I wish.
0: <laughs> now, Gordon, which, which car of your 17 seasons is your favourite?
1: That's a really difficult one because I, I have favourites for different reasons. That my, my first triangular car, let's call it the sort of 42, 44, 44B, will always be one of my favourites. Why? I just think it was the purest. Cars were quite messy in those days, engineering-wise. And, and aesthetics, actually. And it was just one of the purest, simplest motor cars. It had a lot of firsts, engineering firsts. Like attaching the suspension directly to the back of the engine, for which nobody had done before, it had pull rod suspension or rod operated mm-hmm. rising rate suspension, which every car on the planet had now, and stuff like that it moved it was the first car to move a lot of fuel back behind the driver and push the driver forward um, aerodynamically it was very very different, even had a sort of a crude underbody ground effect system on it in seventy four so for those reasons that's probably my overall favorite however i do i do think back very fondly on a couple of others the the bt49 which we ran for three seasons and made 18 of them was again a very simple effective high-speed tool Uh, the fan car was fun
0: Ah, uh, we'll talk about the phone car. And, and <laughs>
1: the other favourite was probably the the pit stop car, the BMW, the arrow shaped car, because again, it was so unconventional.
0: You were so innovative. I mean, I would just love to explore a little more where, <clears throat> excuse me, where these where these ideas came from. Do you, did you seek inspiration from from
1: aeroplanes, or I, you know? Did, I think th- I think it's. The innovation comes from two different areas. I think. I think if you're naturally, you had the the designers and engineers, if you like, in Formula One in the seventies and eighties, definitely fell into two camps. You were either re- revolutionary or evolutionary. And the evolutionary guys made really solid, good cars, and they just made things slightly better. And they did a lot of looking at what other people were doing. The revolutionary stuff, like Chapman, if you like, and and I was definitely out of that mould. Um, was I don't, I don't like what everybody's doing. Let's read the rules again and let's see how we can have the unfair advantage. You know, where can we make the car? How can we make it be much better, not just slightly better? And that's, I, I've, not just racing, I've been like that all my life, I still am. You know, which is why when the F1 road car came out, it was, it was revolutionary, if you like.
0: Well, while we're talking about reading the rules, I think this brings us on nicely to the fan car. Um, can you just explain in layman's terms how it worked and why it was so
1: effective? Okay, I think I think you need to start with the fan car. You need to start why we had to do it because that was more of a necessity than a sort of a a brainstorm. in, in isolation, if you like, because Lotus in seventy eight in seventy seven actually had discovered ground effect with what they called wing cars, where the whole side of the motor car, each side of the monocoque. Was a, was a wing profile, but upside down. And that interacted with the ground to give us ground effect. And for that to be effective, the the bit where the air starts expanding towards the rear of the car, which we call the diffuser, had to be as wide and as big as possible. And with a little V8 or a V12, that was quite easy. Our flat 12, Alpha, was very big and very wide, and it stuck into that area so I could see us in 78 being annihilated by not just Lotus, but all the other wing cars. So I had to come up with a way of matching their downforce or bettering it some, some other way. And I read the regs and found a loophole, and that was the fan car. So the way it worked was quite crude, really. It was just a vacuum cleaner. So it had peripheral skirts and an 18-inch fan on the back. And it literally sucked itself onto the ground. So standing still, you could plug it on the ceiling with the engine running and it would stay there.
0: How many revs would you need to do that?
1: You needed 11,000 engine revs, which was 7,900 fan revs. And it would literally stick on the ceiling. So your interpretation of the rules, how was that legal? Uh, That was pretty simple, actually. It was Article 3.7 in the FIA Yellow Book. And it said, quite simply, if something's primary purpose was to have an aerodynamic effect on the car, it had to remain stationary relative to the sprung mass, which is, in other words, the chassis, without the wheels. So you couldn't have anything moving. And it was written to stop people having movable aerofoils from the 60s, when they were falling apart and falling off the car. People had movable foils. Um, that's why it was written. So I just went to a lawyer and I said, what does primary purpose mean? And he said, how many purposes do you have? And I said, two. And he said, well, primary is then more than 50%. So I made sure the fan sucked more than 50% through a horizontally mounted radiator for cooling and less than 50% sucked the car into the ground. Never pretended uh, the fan didn't suck the car down. It was just primary, it's primary function. And they had to let us race.
0: What did the drivers, Watson and Lauda, say about it?
1: Well, I mean, did they
0: have to completely
1: start again? They had to rethink completely the way they drove the car. And even Nicky took quite a while to get used to it, if you like, because you could have a corner entry speed that was on a third or fourth gear corner, 30 miles an hour faster than the conventional car. But you had to keep the engine revs up because the fan... Uh, suction was slave to the engine revs. So normally, I mean, typically going into a corner, you change down a gear and you come in at around maximum torque, two-thirds of the rev range maybe, hit the apex and you feed the power back on and you get your maximum push out of the corner. So you selected your gear ratios at every different circuit for that scenario. With the fan car, we used to gear the car much lower so you go into the corner at maximum revs already, but then you don't accelerate. You just hold those revs through the corner to get the maximum suction. And then once you're out of the corner, you change up a gear. And it just... It, but going in much faster than you thought you could ever go around the corner took a lot of getting used to.
0: So you say it took Nikki a while. Mm. I mean, how, how long? Because there's an element uh, of tested blind with John,
1: uh, John Watson was out of the drive with John and Nicky. We tested several times actually, uh, initially at Bilocco, at the private test track down at uh, near Milan, Alfa Romeo, and then at uh, Brands Hatch, we took the circuit privately, um, and we did most of the testing at Brands. So going into Paddock Bend 30 miles an hour too quick Goodness. took quite a bit of courage. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. What a, what a, what a great story! And and you then go to Sweden and and louder. I mean, it does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? it yeah, dominates the race just through a high speed corner. I suppose the advantage over a Lotus was obviously much smaller.
1: Yes, it was. Ex- except you 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 could still have a higher entry speed because we had conventional wings as well. But it was the advantage was much more in the medium speed and low speed corners. Yeah,
0: and and did Goodyear have to? Produce special tyres for you because no, the extra we, loading? No, we didn't or... have
1: time for that. No. Okay. I think we ran them at a higher pressure at all.
0: So, when Bernie
1: volunteers
0: to not race the car again after Sweden... I mean, just to talk us through well, that I was, process. I
1: was pretty miffed, as you can imagine, um, because we got a letter. They sealed the car and the truck and they came... It was the CSI, who were the technical body for the FI in those days. And... Uh, they came to the uh, Chessington Works and they brought an anemometer and they measured the total fan flow and they measured the flow through the radiator. And I think they actually got more than my design. I think they got something like 60% through the radiator. So I got a letter from them stating that we could run the car till the end of the season and then they would change the regulation. Because I already had bc 47 on the drawing board with two fans and variable pitch blades... Um, I can't imagine the performance you'd have got. Yeah, but Chapman could see this, you know, Colin was quite a feisty guy and he could see his championship with Andretti slipping away because every race we finished we would have won easily. And um, he banded the other constructors around uh, and they wrote to Bernie and said, if you don't withdraw the car, the Constructors Association is over basically formula one and bernie was just about getting a foothold in the sort of late 70s on formula one and so bernie came to me and said you know what do you think about withdrawing the car and you can understand as as the designer (laughs) i could see our championship disappearing so
0: um i mean was he open to i'm I'm guessing that you said no please can we keep racing it and and was he open to that in any way? No,
1: no, I just, I could see the bigger picture. I've been through the, the doldrums in 72, 73, 74, and I could see Formula One collapsing, and Bernie was already doing a lot of good, so um, I, could, I could see the bigger picture.
0: And then didn't you go, was it the French Grand Prix next? And did Watson put it on pole? With the old
1: spec car? Yeah, the forty six was a quick car anyway. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, we'd finally managed to get the engine a bit lighter and a bit more efficient, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty quick car anyway.
0: The freedom, technical freedom, you guys had. I mean, would Gordon Murray excel in modern Formula One
1: oh, I'd hate with it. the tight? You'd I'd hate it. Absolutely <laughs> hate it. Absolutely hate it. I don't even know how you call yourself a chief designer these days because when you've got Hundreds and hundreds of engineers, you know, um, working on, on the car, and, and all they're working on is thousands of details. The fundamental concept of the motor car is done. You know, the powertrain, the monocoque, the suspension, it's, it's done. And you keep that for a long time. You just fiddle with tiny details. You have hundreds and hundreds of people fiddling with details. I mean, I couldn't think of anything... More boring.
0: Well, you were big into
1: structural composites. Always, yeah.
0: And, and first carbon rear wing, things like that. How close did you get to a carbon composite chassis?
1: We started that in 1978, three years before McLaren. Uh, the Brabham BT48 had carbon bonded and riveted into the chassis and then the 49 had a lot more and we just I just kept using more and more but i was using it in a monolithic form which is a single skin thickness the correct way to use composites is in a honeycomb form where you have two thin skins and and a honeycomb separator in the middle if you like to give you a sandwich panel that's the that's the most efficient way to use carbon but we actually started carbon structurally in cars in in 78
0: Wow, as long we ago. were
1: the first people, the first company to have our own autoclave making carbon components. Um, yes, because McLaren had to go to America, I think, to get it
0: done, didn't they? Yeah, and then they were—they
1: still didn't have. When I joined McLaren in '86, uh, eight years after we had an autoclave, they still didn't have an autoclave. Um, I, I changed that as soon as <laughs> I, I got there. <laughs> um, yeah, so we started carbon and chassis as a structural component. It was—we had the first carbon rollover bar system on the bt-52 everybody else is still using metallic in those days carbon brakes in 1976 and we had a five or six year advantage before anybody else got them to work i did an exclusive deal with the carbon with hitco the carbon brake manufacturers um yeah structural uh, composite rear wings uh, yeah all the way through and of course the first carbon road car with um the f1 well,
0: we'll come on to that before we leave the brabham era behind um, let's talk about refueling was that a lightning bolt moment that was you?
1: that really was Do, just talk us through i how, mean it's, how you, it's like it's one of these things in life where you can't believe nobody's done it because it's a it's a schoolboy sum. you know we all knew when you fill the car up with fuel you went slower <laughs> it's you know weight counts against you it's not just acceleration and braking it's cornering it's tire degradation it's everything you know and it was roughly one second a lap i think a hundred pounds of weight was one second a lap or one pound one pound was point well, It was a hundredth of a second it's that's how it worked out and and it, every time you fill the car up you had that equation that worked against you and you know I don't know why nobody including me had sat down before and gone there's nothing we've always had pit stops at Formula One but there's not a rule against having strategic pit stops and uh, the pit stops in the past have been because of something wrong with the car in the 50s they changed drivers um, in the middle of a race um, or the tires went off or whatever So I did a very quick calculation and it showed that if we didn't lose more than 26 seconds slowing down, changing the tyres, putting the fuel in and going out again, we would win every race. Um, So then it was a matter of doing a lot of research and design work into new wheel nuts, uh, trap nuts in the wheels, air guns, air jacks on the car, Pneumatic jacks on the car, um, and and how you get thirty gallons of fuel in in three seconds. You know.
0: Now, as you say, you've been aware of of it for years. Everybody had. Can mm-hmm. you remember the moment? I can.
1: What I can. You <laughs> what it you was do? it was literally a bath or a shower moment. You know, I was just I was just going through the sum in my head and think at home, and just thinking. Well, hold on a minute. I'm short. Let me go back to the rule book and just see. It might be something in the sporting regs that says you can't stop unless you have to or something. And it wasn't. I couldn't believe it. It was like a revelation.
0: And was Bernie supportive of...?
1: Oh, yeah, he loved the unfair advantage, even, <laughs> even more than I did. You know? So things like the fan car and the hydropneumatic suspension and carbon brakes and all that, he loved all that.
0: Were you worried about the... Safety aspect of refueling. Did you say thirty gallons? What's that? One hundred and thirty liters? In <laughs> yeah, I mean three?
1: it was up to thirty gallons. It was typically nearer twenty-five gallons. Um, yeah, I mean we actually blew a car up in practicing in in uh, Paul Ricard when when one of the chaps had fitted the breather on upside down, and when we had a mechanic sitting in the car, we were practicing, and we actually just blew the monocoque up with it, with the pressure. Trying to trade because, of course, in those days you had no tyre heaters. And if you wanted to change tyres, because I worked out, of course, if you put tyres on as well, you had a double advantage for the next ten laps or so. Either tyres were second a lap quicker. Um, But no tyre heaters. I had to invent tyre heaters. Did you
0: immediately... Do you feel it was a game-changer for everyone in Formula 1, sort of that eureka moment that you'd found? Did everybody see it as well? Or did it take well, you a while to no, hone
1: it? It's really funny because we we converted... The first pit-stop car that raced was the BT52, which won the championship. But the BT50, we converted them, and we tried at least four races at the end of 82 to try and pit-stop. And we wheeled out these great big blue... Um, telephone box type things tie heaters and all these pressure vessels and everybody looked at us like we were crazy but the BMW turbos were so unreliable we never got to a pit stop I think Austria was the first race we actually got to a pit stop and then we blew up after that anyway so we didn't finish a race and I think even though you know, I said to Bernie when we arrive Brazil for the first race next year everybody's going to have half tank cars because it's so obvious and nobody did I couldn't believe it. Williams had a kit they brought with them to convert the cars, which they did. And they had a fire, I think, in that race. Um, but nobody did. But of course, after the first race, everybody could see. So still nobody had done the calculations. So the unreliability of that BMW Turbo mm.
0: was a blessing in disguise because it made no one else can see. Yeah, just it, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can we just talk drivers? Um, best
1: driver you work with at Brabham? I think the quickest was uh, Ayrton Senna, But the best all-round guy I worked with was Nelson Piquet because he was there for seven years. We we got him as a kid, really, and he wanted to learn everything about the motor car. He used to sit on my drawing board every single day, come down to all the wind tunnel sessions, used to try and wanted to understand why things helped and changed. Uh, things on the car, uh, vehicle dynamics on the motor car, um, and because he grew up, he was part of the family really. So he was he was the best all rounder, I'd say. Be- uh, because do, of is he the guy
0: that you had the best bond with?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, but a very good bond also with Nicky, Lauda, and Ayrton uh, as well. But Ayrton's speed was on another sort of level, really.
0: Now, when you say. Um- the fastest driver you worked with was Senna, and we're talking specifically about Brabham. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to a test that Senna did with the Brabham?
1: No, not really. He didn't, he didn't go quicker at Nelson in that test. Um, How excited were you? So to,
0: can we just explain what this was all about? So, so Senna is about to come into Formula One, mm-hmm. am I right? And, mm-hmm. and Bernie was interested in hiring him. Yep. And so you went down to... Paul Ricard. And you had PK and Senna together, mm-hmm. two Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Bit of <laughs> bit of rivalry, I would imagine. Just, can you remember the day?
1: I can remember the day, yeah. And I remember getting on really well with Ayrton, but Nelson was absolutely adamant he didn't want him in the team, and I think that's why he didn't drive for us in the end. Um, Nelson put pressure on Bernie, I think. And
0: what sort of impression did Senna make on you, given that he'd just come I, up from Formula Three?
1: I thought he was. Very, um, his approach was quite different. I thought his approach was very sort of clinical, is the wrong word, but he was very precise about the car and, and very precise about what he had to do to drive the car because it was very different. I mean, jumping in a, a turbocharged, our four cylinder BMW wasn't the easiest engine to drive. It's um, one single turbo, which took a lot of spooling up. You know, so he, he had to cope with all that.
0: And was it clear to you, though? Are we talking? We're talking end of eighty three, are we? It
1: uh, must have been. Yeah. And
0: was it clear to you from that test that Senna was was going to be here to stay?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, definitely. He
0: was yeah. Yeah. heading for the big time. Yeah. Quick word on Carlos Reutemann. Mm-hmm. Um, Seventy five championship. Team finishes second in the constructors' championship. Carlos finishes third. Do you think that car was good enough to win
1: the championship if he,
0: Nicky had been in it?
1: Seventy-five. No, even with Carlos, uh, Carlos he, he was a brilliant driver. I tell you, he really was. But he he had he had circuits he liked and circuits he didn't like, and he had days he liked and days he didn't like. So he was he wasn't the most consistent. But when he was on form. In the forty four on a high speed circuit, he was pretty much unbeatable, absolutely unbeatable, um, and we got on very, very well, had a great relationship with Carlos. He was passionate about his racing,
0: um, quite an emotional driver
1: he was yeah
0: and could you tell from the moment you saw him in the morning what kind of a day you were going to have?: Yes, you
1: could <laughs> <laughs> you could.
0: <laughs> And anything you could do to change that? No. Uh,
1: you couldn't, actually. He had this sort of set thing in his head about, today I'm not quicker than Denny. I'm not quicker than somebody else, you know. And he'd get up to that position in practice, and he, that's where he, what he's happy with.
0: Extraordinary, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the
0: BT55 now. Um, Low-line car. mm
1: mm-hmm. Talk us through the inspiration behind that. Well, that was, again, looking for the unfair advantage, because... Common theme. It, yeah. <laughs> all racing cars have this nasty bump in front of the rear wing, which is called the driver in the top of the engine, and the rollover system. Um, and the the rear airflow to the rear wing is heavily compromised. Uh, it doesn't matter how good the car is. Everybody has, you know, some interference with the rear wing. We had... a we had a really bad situation on the BMW because it was a very tall four-cylinder engine and the airbox stuck out of the side like a, the old Formula 2 and Formula 3 cars, four-cylinder cars. And the, air, the airbox made a lump on one side which made the interference with the rear wing even worse. And I tried all sorts, of, if you look back through the evolution of the BT50 and the BD 52 tried all sorts of different shapes, even leaving the airbox out on the airstream, covering it with different shapes and we could never really get it right. So I thought I thought if I crank the engine over at 18 degrees that puts the airbox vertically behind the driver's head. So that was the original idea. But then when I started drawing it and saw how low the engine was I I immediately thought well if I can get the driver's shoulders back down again because over the years In the 60s, there's nothing new. If you look at all the one-and-a-half-litre Formula One cars from the 60s, they all had back angles of 35, 40 degrees where the drivers were really, because the engine was so small, you didn't want the driver's shoulders in front of the engine for the flow and the frontal area. So I thought, oh, I could get a double whammy here. We could get the airbox out of the airstream, but if I could get the driver laying down so the shoulders were in line with the engine again, we will have... Far less interference to the rear wing. So, lift over drag ratio will be better, but also the frontal area will be better. And sure enough, when we looked in the wind tunnel, I mean, we had a, just a huge jump in lift over drag relative to the last year's car. So, we knew the thing was going to be absolutely dynamite. What I hadn't worked out, and I didn't have enough time really, was that we had so much to do during that winter. To make the engine work leaning over, the crankshaft was offset to one side of the car, wasn't a centre line anymore. So I had to do a Z-drive gearbox to get the drive back into the middle for the differential. And I used Pete Wiseman, as always, to do my tricky transmissions. So David North, myself and Pete Wiseman were working like mad on this engine layout transmission, didn't pay too much attention to the rest of the car. And what I hadn't worked out is with the engine over at 18 degrees, it was also a box, always a, almost a boxer engine, really, if you think about it. Um, the oil wouldn't drain back from the cylinder head in either right or left-hand corners. can't remember which way the engine was leaning over now. And we we had no development time. We just went to the first race. And the car was brilliant in a straight line, lots of downforce, but absolutely a disaster coming out of the corners... Where the oil was being thrashed around inside the engine, and the oil temperature just kept going up and up and up until it was off the scale. And of course, all we had, all we could do was just increase the size of the oil coolers and suffer that performance. And it took us most of the season to find out what the problem was. And even when we did, there wasn't there wasn't really a, a solution.
0: How much of an inspiration had I? Don't know the p34 Tyrrell or the six wheel williams more to the point that they tested at the end of 81 in terms of frontal area uh
1: not really because i didn't start with frontal area i started with the the frontal area was the secondary thing um the it was the airbox in front of the wing um it was only when i literally put it on the drawing board and looked at it and thought wow you know we could get a huge lift over drag advantage here um and and we knew, even though the results were dire, we knew that aerodynamically the car was magic, absolute magic, you know.
0: Now, middle of that year, there was the crash with Elio De Angelis in mm-hmm. testing. at Paul, Paul Rico. Ricard. Um How did his death change your attitude towards Formula One? Um,
1: uh, a lot. Yeah, I'd never lost a driver before. And... Uh, and Elio was a good friend as well, and, and a lovely guy. I mean, he was a really lovely guy. So it was like a, it wasn't just a motor racing loss, it was the loss of a friend as well. But the, but the thing that really upset me was that it was totally unnecessary because he died because they didn't have the right fire equipment. His injuries were a broken collarbone. That was it. Uh, and we, we got to the scene and we couldn't get close enough to the car. We tried to turn it back over. And when the fire truck arrived, the hose, they connected the hose, the f- hose blew off so they couldn't use any, any of the foam inside the tank. And then they had two hand extinguishers and when those were done, that was it. So I actually, you know, because they didn't have the same standards as they do now when you go testing... It was all done on the, on the low-cost, sort of, in low-cost mode, and you didn't have the, the same from the point of view of rescue services or doctors or whatever. And uh, I sort of it was the final straw for me. I was already getting a bit disillusioned, been in Formula One for 17 years. Um, Bernie was losing interest in the team. He could see the bigger picture with Formula One. We'd lost Nelson Piquet. We'd lost our, en- our engine contract was running out. Our tyre contract was running out. And then and then the LEO crash, which was so unnecessary. The result was so unnecessary. And that was like the final straw for me, really. You say you were
0: getting disillusioned with F1 prior to that accident. Um what, travel? Or, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, travel was some of it, but mainly with Brabham because we just, we just weren't investing in the future anymore. You know, it was like uh, Bernie quite rightly had his eye on the bigger prize, which was the, the Formula One itself. And, uh, you know, we'd, both, we'd run the team for so many years together, 14, 15 years, whatever it was. And uh, I think it was all just wearing a bit thin for him and for me. And were you looking elsewhere or were
0: you thinking no, no, I've no, done no, my I was, time?
1: No, I thought after all those years of travelling, I mean um, the first 11 years in Formula 1 I had three weeks holiday total. So it really is, you know, all or nothing. It um, was all or nothing I should say. So I'd, I'd had enough and I was looking at perhaps to start a consultancy and I, I was already thinking about doing a road sports car. Well,
0: what? I suppose, let's come on to McLaren. How how hard did Ron Dennis have to,
1: to push to get Oh, you? a lot. God. A lot, because
0: I had... <laughs> how convi- persuasive is Ron Dennis?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had convinced myself that I had enough of Formula One. And also the regulations were starting to get a little bit tighter and there was less freedom to do stuff. And I just had enough, as you say, the travel, living out of a suitcase and things like that. Um, but Ron had lost... He had a big problem and... Uh, one thing Ron is, is he's pretty astute you know, he knows to win you need certain things and he just lost John Barnard to Ferrari. And he didn't have anybody in the company that had designed a complete car before or, or run the team if you like. Um, so he was very persuasive and ultimately the only way he got me is I said I would. I didn't ask for any more money, I was quite happy with the financial side I just wanted to leave after three years. I said, I'll do it for three seasons and that's it. That has to be it. You know, I'm not doing any more than three. And, um, yeah, and that's what I signed up for, really.
0: How much of your motivation to go to McLaren was to see the BT55 design concept sort
1: of achieve its potential? That that was a big chunk of it because I knew the, um, the current engines were going... and the the Honda engine was going to be this tiny little V6. And I I had a quick look even before I went there and I thought we could probably get the frontal area down to pretty much what the 55 was. And it's a bit like the pit stop thing again. Because we had the failures in the pit stop, nobody really noticed it. And the 55, because it was such rubbish from the point of view of uh, results nobody really worked out that it was a very quick car. Of course, we all knew in the company it was a quick car. So that was a big part of the motivation. I thought if we could get it anywhere near as low as the 55, as it turned out, we got it almost down to 55 frontal area.
0: Similarities between Ron Dennis and Bernie Ecclestone?
1: Ooh. As boss as your boss? Um, well, I never saw either of them as a boss, really. I saw them as a... Like a Bernie was more like a partner. Um, and the similarity was, and this was the clever bit, they both let me have total freedom, not just with the car design, but with running the technical side of the business. Because technical director is much more than just being chief designer. Technical director means you have control over, you know, the way the cars are manufactured, uh, the way they are run at the racetracks, the strategy at the racetracks. And that's the bit, I loved the whole package, you know, I just didn't, I didn't want to just draw cars, I like the whole package.
0: So nineteen eighty eight,
1: fifteen out of sixteen. Yeah, well I arrived, you made it look quite easy. I arrived, <laughs> but I arrived there and the car for eighty seven with the Porsche, Tag Porsche engine, had already been designed and it was really just a rehash of John's John's fantastic MP four one, you know, that was so successful in eighty eighty one or whenever it was. Um hadn't really changed much. It was more evolutionary thing. And it would probably by 86 run its course. Um, And the team that were there that sort of took over from John had already done a rehash of that car again. And uh, it was getting a little bit long in the tooth, I think, which is why it wasn't terribly successful. I I arrived too late to have any real input. I did some tiny stuff, but it was detail on that car. Uh, I wouldn't call it one of my cars at all, but what I did have was a completely clean sheet of paper to look at the other cars we had to do going forward, because there was the normally aspirated car after the the Honda car as well. Um, so, yeah, I had clean sheet of paper, and whenever it's it's terrifyingly effective whenever you get a clean sheet of paper for a car, and at Brabham because we kept changing engines, <laughs> I seem to have a clean sheet of paper a lot. I always, Bernie was always throwing these engine changes at me. And this was, you know, I looked at the V6, wasn't quite low enough. The thing that really disappointed me when I got to McLaren, it wasn't quite low enough to get down to the 55 frontal area. But then we were working with Honda. I, I had a really good relationship with Osama Goto, who was the chief designer, and Kawamoto, actually, the president. Really good relationship with those guys and the team. And um, we came out with a smaller clutch, or the clutch manufacturer came out with a slightly smaller diameter clutch, and Honda immediately jumped on it because i have been pushing them to try and get the engine lower and lowered the crankshaft height just before we were due to use the engine. So we got it down to... I, I never worked out the frontal area, but it must have been very similar to the 55
0: So when you look at the headline of 1988, utterly dominant, Mm -hmm. your most satisfying season?
1: Uh, Yes, but the background isn't just the car. The background is before I designed the car, um, I, I changed a lot of systems at McLaren. Um, it's all in the book. <laughs> I, <bet. laughs> I changed I changed a lot of systems, you know. I didn't like the way they... The car wasn't that reliable, the lifing systems they used.
0: Autoclave?
1: Uh, yeah, autoclaves, brought in uh, autoclaves, brought in gearbox testing, um, uh, rig testing for gearboxes to make sure...
0: All of which you'd had at Brabham, obviously. Everything we had at Brabham. So you were quite
1: surprised. I, I was amazed. I, I, I saw... Williams and McLaren and Ferrari is these, because their budgets were so much bigger, I saw them as these vastly more organised teams. It's only when I got to McLaren I realised that and we were much more organised from the point of view of making cars reliable. And I think that the success of the 88 season wasn't just the fact we had the unfair advantage with the lift over drag in the frontal area, uh, but we had all the systems in place to make the cars reliable.
0: And... Throughout your Brabham career, is it fair to say that you effectively had a a number one and a number two driver, whereas suddenly in 88 you had two number ones? How different was that?
1: Well, at Brabham, it was even worse, actually. We had paid drivers (laughs) because we didn't have enough sponsorship. (laughs) So we had like a number one and a number three driver quite often. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, people have often said to me, well, it must have been terrible trying to manage... Alain Prost and Ayrton, I mean, what a fantastic problem to have. You know, to have – I've never had the luxury, as you say at Brabham, of having – going into a race where either driver could win the race because Alain was a very, very quick driver too, you know, very fast and very good at setting up the car as well. Different from Turner, but very good at setting up the motor car. And, uh, you know, to go to every race and just going, don't care who wins – you know
0: how political did it get between them in terms of i, I just, not wanting to share information I and- broke
1: it all down immediately because I was sitting I had I had the luxury not just of people to draw car bits but I had the luxury of of race engineers you know I, I even had a race engineer on the spare car so I, I went from Brabham where I was engineering the cars on my own to um to having three race engineers and and the system they were used to was the drivers would go off after practice and sit quietly, talk to their race engineers and come up with it. And, and the feedback would go, oh, it's ridiculous. You know. If you've got two guys of that calibre, you, you should get two hours. After an hour's practice, you should get two hours' worth of information to share and make the car faster for the race and try and win the race. So I banned them um, having separate meetings. So they had to always be in one office and we shared all the information. And that's, that's a lot to do with the number of races we won.
0: Both drivers in the same room. Absolutely. Did you get any interaction between the two of them in that environment? Not,
1: not a lot, actually, because it was in a public sort of forum, if you like, because we had the race engineers there. And they, you know, there was a lot of double and triple bluffing going on with tyre choices. But you could, re- you could see through that. Most of the time.
0: I mean, there was, was there ever sort of, I suppose it's too elementary to sort of, were they trying to kid each other and set up and... Oh, Not so like much that setup, works better from, was it about tyres, To tie, okay. tires, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. There was a bit of double bluffing going on with that.
0: Now, you said a minute ago that you were involved in the um, normally aspirated V10 that Honda then bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, were you still involved in the F1 team when Honda went V12? And if you were... How terrified were you after the experiences with the v No, my last,
1: I only did, my years lagged behind my time at McLaren because I didn't do the 87 car. So my, the cars I was in charge of design was, were, were the 88 season, 89 and 90. But because the longer future was normally aspirated, I picked Neil Oatley. Neil Oatley was probably the only designer there that had some serious, background on and he was very very good we got on very well so i picked him for the future if you like i backed him for the future with the na cars and to be honest the last card of mp45b for the 90 season when i wasn't there of course that one i left almost entirely up to neil because it was just a rehash of the of the five, which was the first na car um so those were the three cars that i I had involvement, not not the V twelve,
0: but and was the V twelve a success? I mean, it was from the point of view that Senna won the championship, but mm. in terms of how had it all how had it all evolved in the time since you were with Alpha and
1: oh, okay. I mean, is it is it just the engine side was yeah. just a different world, really? Right. Yeah. I mean, the Alpha years were very um, let's let's be kind and just say Italian. <laughs> They were very hit and miss, you know. We'd, we'd turn up... Did at a, you get
0: Monday morning engines and Friday afternoon oh yes. engines? And oh, yeah. yeah. And you had <laughs> test
1: engines that, that they said were uh, the same and actually turned out in the end to have different heads, different cams, different, you know. Um, I mean, it was a minefield in the 70s.
0: So Ron was true to his word and let you go after Absolutely. three. And, yeah. and in your mind, despite all the success and... Mm. The different way of doing things at McLaren, you still wanted out. It hadn't. There wasn't any conversation no, I had about enough. you. Can... Twenty
1: years in Formula One, honestly, you know. And I was really looking for a new challenge. All my life, I've looked for a new challenge, and I thought going to McLaren was a good challenge. You know, it was a sort of um, very different team from Brabham. We were going into a completely new era with engine supplier and then engine. So, clean sheet of paper again. And that was a massive challenge. But then having done that, it was enough, really.
0: Nothing, no Ferrari, no really... Did, did Ferrari ever come knocking? Was yep. it ever?
1: They yep. did? Yep, a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, yes. never tempted? Not really, <laughs> no. alpha,
0: alpha years had put you off. <laughs> no, yeah.
1: no, no, it wasn't so much that. I didn't... First of all, I didn't want to live in Italy. Um, and second, I love Italy, but I did, at the time I was pretty happy where I was. Um, but also... I like being with a team and building them up, you know. I, uh, I had an offer from McLaren before John hired Barnard. Actually, Ron tried to get me out of Brabham. But I was, we were just starting to look good in the late 70s and I could see us winning a championship if I worked at it and stayed at it. Um, and Nelson had just joined us. So I, I refused that then, turned that down then. So I like being with the team and building it up. I don't like chopping and changing, really. So
0: when did the McLaren F1 road car project sort of raise its head? And was it sort of Ron's way of keeping you in the fold? I think there was an element of that. but stop you going to one of his rivals?
1: I, yeah, there was definitely. Ron was also very good at that. Um, there was definitely an element of that. But... Um, it, the the idea for a road car... I've always wanted to do um, a top-line sports car. Um, beat Ferrari at their own game sort of thing. Always fascinated. And uh, Mansour Oje, who was the other partner and the fellow director, uh, he'd wanted to do a road car even as early as when he was sponsoring Williams. So he brought the background idea with him. But then the reality was it wasn't just Ron, it was me too, thinking it's all very well saying, I'm only doing another three years, but what am I going to do that's as stimulating and as exciting as Formula One? Um, so it was probably as early as 18 months into my three years, certainly within within the last year, we'd started talking about, um, well, what am I going to do? You know, I was thinking about it, they were thinking about it, uh, as you say, didn't really want to lose me. So um, it was an 88 at in, I think, Lanate Airport, where we were all sitting waiting for a plane, famously. Uh, it was Crichton Brown, myself, Ron and Mansoor. And we just said, well, what are we going to do? Ron also, in parallel, wanted to expand the business uh, because in those days we were a small catering company and a Formula One team, that was it. And Ron could see that we were going to need to do an electronics company, so he started the idea behind that. And then the car business came out of the four of us just chatting, really, about what are we gonna do with me?
0: <laughs> and so what about a, you know a three-seat supercar?
1: Well, we were a Formula One team. We didn't have a brand. Um, we didn't have a road car brand, an automotive brand, if you like. We were a Formula One team. And I wanted to use Formula One technology, which was carbon the first carbon car. I wanted to use Formula One aerodynamics, ground first ground effect car. And I thought, if you want to do the purest driver's car, what better combination of Formula One racing car carryover and making somebody feel really important, the world's first million-dollar car, and being the purest driving experience, it all just went central seat. But a single seater is a very limited market because you can never take anybody with you. And way back in 69, I had done... We found the notebook. I had done a sketch in a notebook at college for a sort of arrowhead, not three in in a row, but an arrowhead formation where the passengers were squeezed in a little bit, rearwards and in a little bit, and that's what I revived, basically.
0: God, the idea was a long time in its gestation, but mm. it's finally... Mm. And, and how, in terms of what you envisaged in your mind when you were designing the car, how, does that, how did that correlate with reality? Did it all translate? Pretty
1: much, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of new technology which was actually grinding through that bit of it, you know, how you get... The carbon body and the carbon chassis and that sort of stuff. First carbon clutch as well. But the from a conceptual point of view, it pretty much stayed from... If you look at the early sketches of the F1, it didn't change much. Yeah.
0: And then how many did you produce? A hundred. Only 100. Mm. You like the idea of producing limited edition supercars don't you
1: gordon i do uh the, the the hundred cars then is because we couldn't sell anymore basically and we were losing money on every one so it was i think it's not extraordinary to think now because they're worth yeah significant um, yeah. amounts yeah. more. Yeah. Than... but in those days you, you know, have to look we just we just entered a recession a huge recession at the end of the 80s and it was the world's first million dollar car and we were an unknown brand really um, we probably could have sold 150 if we if we'd soldiered on, but um, as I say, we were losing money on the cars. It's only when we went racing that we made money.
0: So when you won Le Mans with that car, mm. was that one of your most satisfying
1: victories? Definitely, probably the most in motorsport. The most to ahead take of anything you did. Out of anything I've done, yeah, why? To, to do, well, just to. Design a car for the road without racing in mind at all. Because if you look at the F1, it's more of a GT car, really. It was the only supercar of its time to have proper luggage space. And it had air conditioning and a sound system and, you know, all the luxurious uh, things, overdrive top gear for cruising and all, all sorts of GT type stuff. Um, and then to take a car like that where, where racing hadn't even crossed my mind, I, I wanted to focus on doing a, a good road car, uh, to take that to Le Mans and win outright and come first, third, fourth and fifth um, and first, second and third in your class, I mean, was just beyond a dream, really.
0: Your most satisfying win, what did Ron Dennis make of the Le Mans win?
1: I think Ron was much more concerned at the time that the other, the other teams quite incorrectly saw us as a works team couldn't have been further from the truth because it was a very late entry for a Japanese chap who wanted to have a car at Le Mans and it was our old test hack that we had already done a 24-hour test with um, that we rebuilt quickly for this Japanese guy. And I think Ron was very concerned that the other teams who were paying for our services and had bought cars would see this as a works a works motor car, uh, which it wasn't really.
0: It seems you have achieved so much in 50 years, but it's not over because I think the day of release of our little chat here, <laughs> you've got another
1: project. Yeah, I know. We're doing the most exciting. Well, this is the best design and engineering time of my life for sure because the work that Gordon Murray Design has been doing for 12 years, changing the way we make road cars is one thing and that's we're working with companies all around the world uh, on different types of motor car, latest technologies. But on top of that, um, yeah, we're we're announcing um, a supercar which is going to be the natural successor to the McLaren F1 and once again, just 100 cars and the latest technology um, and a clean sheet of paper. So that's very exciting too.
0: Where have you improved the McLaren F1 with this T50?
1: Everywhere. I actually play a game with some, some of the people that have bought the car. Um, I say, look, this is better than the F1 in every single way. Not just components, but deliverables and targets. And, and so they go, well, it can't be because that's still recognised as the best, you know, engineered car, best driver's car, whatever, by some people. And uh, so I go, okay, name something. Name an experience or a deliverable or a component, and I'll tell you exactly why it's better. And every single thing is better, because in 27 years, well, actually, if you include the design time, 30 years on, technology and systems and materials have moved on massively. So my toolbox and my toy box, if you like, is, is three times the size it was in 1990. Um, and part of well, the car is just better in every way. And
0: is there a plan to race it?
1: I'd love to race it. You um, know how like,
0: you say that the F1 was just a road car in your mind and you hadn't planned to race it? Have yeah, you had racing this, in the back of your mind? No, car? no,
1: this time I'm not designing it as a racing car, same thing. Right. Uh, but having said that, you know, if, if we had a chance to race it just from an historic point of view, it would be fun to race it again. So we are already talking to the uh, people that make the regs. Fantastic.
0: How very exciting. Well, final thing. I'm sat here in your beautiful offices in Surrey and I have a, this book, One Formula, 50 Years of Car Design, sat in front of me. Is it, is, look, I mean, I've had a look. It, it seems... The autobiography of Gordon Murray.
1: But is that how you see it? Not really. No, it started off as a project. Um, the, bi- the, the biography or autobiography will have, to be, will have to include all my other interests, and there are loads. Um, and that would run to probably ten volumes. <laughs> it was difficult to keep this one down to two volumes. I think we got up to volume six at one point. <laughs> um, it is autobiographical in the beginning, And there are anecdotal things all the way through. So it is partially, I would say, biographical. But it's fundamentally the story of 85 car designs uh, in 50 years. And the trouble with doing the book was I keep everything. So the book is full of sketches, notes, drawings and the background... And the one formula um, is a bit of a play on, obviously, Formula One, but it's, it's much more about the way I design cars, you know, always striving for lightweight and striving for engineering perfection. And that's what comes across in the book because there's so much background work on, on the story behind the car, not just pictures of the car. Uh, so the difficulty in doing the book was trying to sort out what to include and what to leave out because mm. I just had so much stuff.
0: And you say you've got loads of other interests, just very briefly. What are the other books going to be about?
1: Uh, well, my, my Head of Heritage has got a list of 28 and they include things like, obviously, music, uh, Bob Dylan specifically I could do a book on. Um,
0: Was he one of your heroes?
1: Absolutely, Great. Chapman yeah. and Dylan, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a t shirt collection of around a thousand shirts, which is going to be a fascinating book because there's a background to virtually every shirt, where it came from, why I bought it. You know, some of them are racing, some of them are cities, some of them are restaurants from all around the world.
0: I do remember looking at sort of when you're Brabham era. Yeah. I don't
1: suppose Ron was into your t shirts quite so much.
0: Probably not. <laughs> but it was what's Gordon going to wear at this race?
1: Yeah. yeah. And things like fine wine. Um, Oh, a house design, um, there's, there's a couple of houses I've done that actually warrant a book on their own because they are very comprehensive, complex designs. Wow, so now you've got
0: more time, as in not doing Formula One, not travelling, mm-hmm. just everything else is mushroomed, it would... Yeah,
1: so... yeah, I'm still struggling to find, I still do 12 hours a day here, but I'm still struggling to find enough time. The book's taken nearly three years to do.
0: Wow. Well, it is sensational. Final Mm. question from me. Of all those car designs, your favourite?
1: Wow. I think it has to be the McLaren F1, but that's soon going to be uh, the Gordon Murray Automotive T50, I think. Can't wait to read about it. Gordon, absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers.
0: What a treasure trove of stories. Few people in history have crammed as much into 20 years of F1 as Gordon, and few have created such a stir with their designs and innovations. The Brabham fan car, genius. The introduction of refueling was audacious just for its simplicity, and the man responsible for the 1988 McLaren MP44 was always going to leave an indelible mark on the sport. Thanks for your time, Gordon, and good luck with the book and your T50 supercar. Gordon, of course, worked with John Watson, our guest last week at Brabham, and we had plenty of feedback about that episode. Rohit Subramanian got in touch to say such a wonderful and timely episode with John Watson. I was working on a presentation while listening to this, and the first part about Nikki in Rio had me grinning without even realising it. Well, thanks, Rohit, for your message. And yes, it certainly seemed as though Watty and Nicky had plenty of laughs. And like Rohit, please keep your feedback coming. We really love it. And remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. That's it for this episode. But as ever, we'll be back very soon with another big name guest from the world of F1. While you wait for that episode to drop, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And have you heard about our sister podcast, The Road to F1? It's the perfect place to get the lowdown on the stars of tomorrow currently racing in F2. So just search for F2, The Road to F1 in your favorite podcast app and give it a listen. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.